a friend of mine, um, before becoming a pastor, was an engineer, a civil engineer, and he had a lot of experience in water management. And while pastoring in a town that was vulnerable to occasional flooding, um, he was able to join a, a flood plan risk assessment committee, which worked on the town's levee banks. Uh, with his engineer hat on, he prepared the town for a physical flood. And yet with his pastor hat on, he prepared the town for a spiritual flood. The day when the wave of God's cleansing power comes both to save and to judge the living and the dead. Last week in Titus, we were similarly urged to recognise God has not placed this church within Christendom, a Christian society. We aren't to expect the state to align politically with us or society to support the church's values or purpose. No, God has not placed us within Christendom, but in a mission field, a flood zone. And God is offering a lifeline to the world through us, the church. I've shared in the past the same challenge from Charles Spurgeon, who saw God save a multitude of people through a vibrant church. And he writes about the church, Why are we here? Would God keep his children out of a paradise a single moment longer than necessary? Why is the army of the living God still on the battlefield when a single strike from heaven could give us victory? Why are his children still wandering here and there through a maze when one word from his lips would take us to the very centre of our hopes in heaven? The answer is that we are here so that we may live to the Lord and lead others to know his love. We remain on earth to sow his good seed, to plough the unsown ground and to proclaim the message of salvation. Well, like my engineer friend, you might be to your friends, your colleagues, your relatives, someone wearing two hats, a good friend to them and a friend who earnestly speaks of a coming flood before it overwhelms them. The Bible passage we're looking at today helps us with two important questions. First, how was the Son of God being prepared to save the world? And then secondly, is the world prepared for the Son? How does the Son prepare and is the world prepared for the Son? So first look with me at uh, God's Son who is being prepared to save the world. As we see in verses 41 to 52, we watch the boy being prepared. And we'll see that Jesus was prepared in two senses. He was prepared in the sense that he was willing and he was prepared by doing what is necessary. The son prepared to save the world. At Christmas, a little while ago, we saw the infant Jesus. By now, he's a child, as verse 40 says, who, like prophets like Samuel before him, grew and became strong, we read in verse 40. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. This is the prophet's formula when God's raising up someone for his work. Now, it's not typical in Sydney parenting, but often in close-knit communities or extended family holidays, um, sometimes you just don't know where your kids are for an extended period of time. Um, when we lived in Walker, a small country town in New South Wales of, of about 2,000 people, most people knew who most people were. And so if kids are in a group of friends, most people know what's going on and they're watching each other. Um, at the annual show, the, the, the Walker Show, Often kids would just disappear and then you'd hope to be re reunited at the end of the night. And often you'd see them reappear when the funds ran low as well. But here in verse 42 we read Jesus is now 12 years old 
and he's from a faithful family who every year take him on the, the pilgrimage in a caravan of people to the Passover festival in Jerusalem. I don't know if you've ever thought about the boy Jesus very much, but it must have been a very sobering trip for Jesus heading up to Jerusalem for the Passover as one who by this time, I take it, would be aware that he is to be the Passover lamb. An immense and growing weight of responsibility for a 12-year-old child. And if you're around 12 or a teenager, or perhaps elderly or somewhere in between, you might find Jesus so inspiring. He's a loved and loving person of faith, a faithful child deliberately investing already in his father's work. His parents, after a day and perhaps 30 kilometres of travelling, that's what the scholars say, 30 to 40 kilometres, it sounds a lot, doesn't it, in those times? Everything was by foot. But after perhaps 30 kilometres of travelling towards home from Jerusalem, they realise he ain't there. Verse 44. And after three days, which probably means on the third day, that is, they probably had a day walking out, a day to walk back to Jerusalem, and on the third day, a chance to look for Jesus. And they try the temple courts, which were some 35 acres in size. And in verse 46, we read, They found him in the temple courts sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Go Jesus. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. That word too can be translated, they were marvelling or perhaps exasperated. Um, Perhaps a tad annoyed after two days of needless worry and walking. There's a bit of annoyance perhaps in his mother's question. The next verse, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. At about 12 years old, Jewish boys would start going to the temple um, to get understanding from the teachers and, and to get answers from God's word. But here we see the teachers are amazed at his understanding and his answers, verse 47. And the first recorded words of Jesus that we have in the Bible have much to teach us as well. He says respectfully to his parents, verse 49, picking up on mum's mention of his father, didn't you know I had to be? And this had to be is a special word in Luke's gospel. It's, it's used a number of times and it carries the meaning of must or it's a compulsion word, that it was necessary. Didn't you know that it was necessary I had to be in my father's house? Now that too is striking. Jews thought of God as the father of their nation, the fatherland perhaps, but to call God my father was striking as well. We're used to it as Christians. This was quite breathtaking for Jews to hear. More literally, Jesus is saying, didn't you know I had to be about the things of my father? Your father's looking for you. Well, which father? I had to be here on my father's business. Mary and Joseph knew his birth story. They'd heard the incredible prophecies about him, but they were learning as they go, just as we are as we read the gospel. And so, verse 50, they didn't understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and as readers, so too can we. There's a serious mindedness to Jesus for his father's kingdom, even as a 12-year-old. And he combines that with honouring his mum and dad. 
our friend was a kindergarten teacher down near Wollongong. And she assured us that most parents think their children are very advanced when it comes to the end time of enrolment. My child's very advanced. Well, Mary saw in Jesus a truly special boy indeed, a boy being prepared to save the world. Verse 52, repeat of the sentiments of the early verse. And Jesus grew again in wisdom and stature and in a state, his state of favour with God and man. This is all about Jesus. It shows that he wasn't just unique as an adult, he was unique from the start. But it's also an inspiring path we can set before our church's children and youth as we all seek to be like Christ. You know, youth group, kids' church, not just to kill time. We're disciples growing to know the love of the Father. Next in chapter 3, 1 to 6, there's more preparation underway. This time it's through God sending John the Baptist and we hear the prophets foretelling his coming. The beginning of chapter 3 is difficult to read, but it reminds us we're reading not myth but history. It's around AD 28. And while the great Tiberius Caesar of mighty Rome and while important governors and kings are doing their thing, thinking their plans matter most, the king of all kings' purpose was being seriously developed by whom and where? Well, by an obscure prophet out in the wilderness, verse 2, whose words were the word of God, and who, verse 3, preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The biggest ever prophetic announcement was being made. Something huge is about to happen. And as readers, we can get excited. Uh, when I was young, we lived on a little bit of land, about an acre, and we had a small motorbike. And I still remember when I was too young to ride the motorbike, I was doubled by my older brother. And we'd go up the hill and we'd turn around at the top of the hill. And then we, when we were about to go full speed down the hill, my brother would call out, hold on to your hats, boys. I don't know if that came from a movie or a TV show or something, but that's what he said. And away we'd go. The acceleration and the speed down the hill was the best. Luke's gospel is that point of excitement. Here we are. Hold on to your hats, boys. We've had promises. We've had angels. We've had miracles. We've got all of these scriptures of the Old Testament. And now the Lord himself is about to come on stage. The Lord behind all of the prophecies himself is coming. So don't you think it's a bit odd then that the message seems a bit negative, verse 3? You'd think John would be, it'd be all about excitement. But John the announcer instead is preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Words perhaps our culture doesn't like very much and think perhaps we don't need. John's a disruptor. He's there to distress, to upset, to disturb his hearers about the seriousness of sin. And why, why the water baptism? Why was that part of it? I take it it's to make more than agreement or lip service from God's people. The whole body was involved in this sign of cleansing. And it was public. No closet followers, please. Repent in community. Take a stand. Where, where, where are you standing? And why the focus on repentance? That is turning from sin back to God. So that when the Lord Jesus comes, those already turned to God can meet him, not with false self-righteousness, but with humility, with openness. 
Did John make up the curriculum? No, Isaiah, and remember Hosea and Joel we looked at in recent months as well, had the same approach. It's just that the Lord's coming is now only moments away. Hold on to your hats, repent. Now Isaiah saw several hundred years earlier that one would come to announce the Lord. That one is John. And he foresaw another one would come who is the Lord. That one is Jesus. And so even John's role has been scripted for him and and we see his job description in verse 4. John says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, that's me. Prepare the way for Yahweh, the Lord. If you get a chance to read Isaiah 40, it fills this out beautifully. But prepare the way of Yahweh, the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. We've seen Simeon, remember, seeing baby Jesus and saying, I've now seen your salvation as he looks at this child. In these days when an emperor would come, a city and its entry road would be prepared. It all has to be ready and and look good. No obstacles. In Papua New Guinea, before the aid aeroplanes arrived, missionaries would labour for months to prepare the runway. John and Jesus are preparing the world for the Lord himself, for God's salvation. Verse 6. The Lord is coming any day now. Remove all spiritual obstacles. Prepare him room. But is the world then and now prepared for the Son? And what can we learn from this as a church, as we too have this mission to save, as John and Jesus did before us? Point two then, is the world prepared for God's Son? And first we see unrepentant humans are compared with snakes awaiting God's anger. At the very high risk of offending people, And we might note that offence is almost a crime in itself in our society. And so this could be touchy for us as we seek to imitate some of John's lessons. But John calls ordinary Israelite crowds, you brood of vipers. In Matthew, John the Baptist directs these words to the religious teachers, the Pharisees. But in Luke here, it's to the nation, it's to the crowds representing the nation. It's like Hosea, Joel, Isaiah said of you fellow Jews, or as Paul says of his own people, or it's not a racist thing either. Last week we heard him describe those in Crete in a similar way. He doesn't say, thanks for coming everyone, you've been a terrific audience, faithful Israelites. He doesn't try to butter them up, flatter them. No, instead at the risk of offending all, in order to give all a chance of serious introspection. John says, probably repeatedly to the crowds, plural, you brood, family, breed, nation of vipers. And when you remember the Israelite crowds will before long be crying out, crucify him, crucify him. The description seems a little fairer. I don't know if you've seen the popular 1980s movie, three amigos it's a bit corny but at one point the three amigos attempt the most devastating insults they can think of when they say you dirt eating piece of slime you scum sucking pig 
you son of a motherless goat. That's comical. John was addressing Israel's national pride. And they too often, often, often saw themselves as superior to other races, other humans. In our language, a similar message may sound towards Australia very unpatriotic or condemning. You miserable excuse for a nation, Australia. You're a sick mob of moral deviants. It would have been shocking. It would have been raising a, a spirit of defence. And for the humble, it would have been a wake-up call. Is that true of us? You can learn about how to give a catchy talk in various places online, in books, but I've never heard a public address start like that. You brood of vipers. And notice the follow-up question. It doesn't get much better. The intense, holy scrutiny of God continues through the prophet. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Who was the kind soul who told you to come here for repentance and to escape? John's teaching is not merely to insult them or to condemn them as an end in itself. It is to stir within them a lively repentance. Were people rewarded if they heeded John's warning and received his baptism? We know they were. Was God's strategy of preparing the way for Jesus helpful to so many of those insulted Israelites? Absolutely it was. Luke later looks back on the baptism's effectiveness. If you'd turn with me a few pages forward to Luke chapter 7, 29 to 30. Luke chapter 7, verse 29. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. And what's the next verse? But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Proud of heart then, proud of heart now. Humble of heart then, humble of heart now. God's preparation through John has been effective, just as his preparation through raising a righteous child was effective. Don't rely on racial pedigree, he says, in Luke 3 verse 8. Because, verse 9, the axe has already been laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And so if you do have a soft heart, or perhaps just curious, you ask the natural question, what then are you wanting us to do? What should we do about this? What then shall we do? It's the same question raised in Acts chapter 2 when the Apostle Peter preaches the gospel. And tells them that you crucified the Son of God, the Messiah. What then shall we do? And Peter says, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be forgiven your sin. But because Jesus' work hasn't yet been known or, or done yet, John's answer is pre-Christian, it's pre-cross. It's preparing them to believe in Jesus when he appears very soon. In fact, just there in verse 21, Jesus does appear. And in verse 23, his public ministry is ready to begin. John nor Jesus would ask them to cease being soldiers, cease being tax collectors, to take off those hats in their society. John's repentance calls them neither to separate from the world nor to selfishly pursue it. It's very practical. You've got two shirts, someone doesn't have one, give them one. 
if you're using your might and your power to abuse, mistreat people for your own profit, stop it. It's to show by their actions that they truly do trust God. In fairness, humanity, contentment, sharing, all the things we humans should master in preschool but never do. Awareness of the Lord's nearness will rebuke a person of manipulation and greed and free a person from that. A person who trusts God begins to say, I do actually have enough and I'd like to share more of what I've got. Yes, verse 16, for I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. Don't worry about me, worry about him, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy even to untie. He will baptize you not with mere water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. God's holy, personal, refining presence is about to come. Holy Spirit and fire. And this too matches the Acts 2 account, doesn't it, of Pentecost. Yes, the coming Lord's presence will be both wonderful and terrible if you view together Jesus' first and second coming as the Old Testament prophets did. They didn't separate the comings as we now do. The Lord's presence will save you or it will judge you. It all depends whether you are kneeling when he comes or defiantly standing against him when he comes. All humans have a choice, really then, of two fires. If not Jesus and the fire of the Holy Spirit that warms our hearts and has us love and follow him, verse 16, well then it's the fire of judgment that comes in verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Humans want and expect God will somehow sort the world out. It's one of the biggest accusations of God. Why does he tolerate evil? Why doesn't he fix everything? Why doesn't he make everything right? God will do exactly that. Wheat this way, chaff the other. His people with him, those who refuse him, away from him. If our society does not bow to the Lord and be saved, our society is continuing to take him on and it will suffer. If our media and our institutions have no time to give Jesus any positive light, they're acting something like Herod, who we read in verse 20, locked God's messenger John up in prison because John dared to confront Herod with his sin of taking his brother's wife as his own. Now, this might sound like a negative message this morning. Perhaps you've come for something uplifting. David, how can I bring my friend to church if we hear these warnings? But notice in verse 18 that this is actually very good news we're hearing this morning because it's what's, what all people need to hear. And it's how God saves people. We see that in verse 18. With many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. You call that good news, John? Yes. It's great news. You can be ready to meet your maker and you will meet your maker either as friend or foe. I'm telling you how to do it as friend. There is a way. Repent from sin. It's done you no favours through your life. Why be loyal to it? And accept the supreme authority of the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Well, how do we know Jesus finally had supreme authority? God himself 
says so. He leaves us in no doubt. It could have been a hidden message, but instead it's very public. That we might see in Jesus, God's Son, in verses 21 to 22. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. I take it not because he's sinned, he hasn't, but as a faithful Israelite devoted to the Lord. And as he was praying, we read, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. If you're struggling to explain the Trinity to a child, you can't do much simpler than this. Father, Son, Spirit, all in the one scene. Witnessed by many. Simple on the one hand and unfathomable on the other. Can you ever get your head around God being man? A friend of mine, now an elderly man, didn't have a good father growing up. And this was one of his favourite verses in the Bible. Not only because God the Father so publicly and powerfully affirmed the Lord Jesus, which is a wonderful thing for a father to do. Occasionally I'll remember that and tell my, my kids, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, my daughter. But also because it meant my friend did truly have a heavenly father who loved him and was delighted in him. The father, of course, who matters most to him. He's now around 80 years old. He's had about 60 years of knowledge that he has a father who deeply loves him. Did you not know I had to be about my father's business, this father? With reverence for Jesus, my friend took this verse so personally and it changed his life. Because of Jesus, God says to us as well, you are my sons and daughters whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Isn't that wonderful? Whatever we do the rest of the day, whatever we do tomorrow, righteousness of Christ is ours. And so, DPC, are we a church community announcing this good news? Let's pray that we are. The Lord was prepared to save the world. Is our world prepared to be saved by Jesus? No, not yet. And that's why we are here. That is our mission. A church community wearing two hats in all corners of society. I'm very glad we disperse on Sundays back into society that needs our voice. I'm glad to hear sometimes people can't come to one of our church meetings because they've got a kingdom engagement somewhere else or perhaps just at work with, with peers as they live as disciples in that place. We're a church when gathered and we're a church when scattered. I'm glad your neighbour has you living next door. Our church's witness is warmly mixed with engineer stuff and teacher stuff and tradie stuff, retiree stuff, relative stuff, social stuff. We are those who improve levy banks and we are those warning people to be ready for Jesus. We who say Jesus was prepared to save the world, are you, friend, prepared to be saved by Jesus? Well, let's pray.